This week, Katera files for Chapter 11 after being implicated in Greensill insolvency proceedings. Hertz Chapter 11 plan confirmed. Mallinckrodt revises plan treatment of unsecured claimants. GTT amends SPA ahead of looming coupon payment. Hello and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Julian Boulown. David Zubkis will be joining me for the Week in Review. Later on, we'll discuss the bankruptcy cases of Cumtor Gold, which, during a first-day hearing on Tuesday, received objections from the Kyrgyz Republic that questioned the propriety of the bankruptcy filing. This week, we'll also be revisiting a recent Reorg-exclusive webinar led by Reorg's Kyle Abusu, where you'll hear an in-depth discussion of the state of the offshore drilling industry as key players emerge from Chapter 11. Kyle is joined by Alex Partners' Peter Oppitzhauser and Wood McKenzie's Martin Kelly. It's Friday, June 11th. Katera Inc., a Scottsdale, Arizona-based commercial and residential construction company, filed for Chapter 11 protection on Sunday night in the bankruptcy court for the Southern District of Texas, along with 32 affiliates. Katera said that it faced a critical liquidity shortfall in late May following statements from SoftBank that the investor would not continue to support Katera with go-forward equity. Katera also cited operational problems in the wake of press reports that the company was implicated in the Greensill insolvency proceedings. Chief Transformation Officer Mark Liebman said in the first day declaration, that Katera experienced losses on contracted projects that experienced significant cost overruns, resulting in massive ongoing losses. After a May 2020 capital raise stalled, in part because of investigations surrounding potential accounting irregularities, the company's financial condition further deteriorated, according to Liebman. The debtors say they are focused on marketing Katera's key assets and operations and have entered into term sheet commitments to sell their Lord, Eck, and Sargent and Katera renovations businesses. The debtors seek approval of bid procedures, including authority to select a stocking horse. Notwithstanding SoftBank's unwillingness to further fund the debtors, SoftBank affiliate SB Investment Advisors UK has agreed to provide a $35 million senior secured super priority dip promissory note designed to provide Gatera with enough liquidity to run an in-court marketing process. At a largely uncontested first day hearing, Judge David Jones granted all of the Gatera debtors requested first day relief, including interim approval of the $35 million dip facility. Judge Mary Walrath on Thursday confirmed the Hertzstetter's Chapter 11 plan after overruling all remaining outstanding objections. At the hearing, only equity holder Gamco, which found fault with the plan's release of pre-petition litigation claims, pressed its objection. Earlier in the week, the debtors reached settlements with their secured funded debt holders on contested claim amounts. On Tuesday, the debtors revealed in their confirmation brief that they had settled first lien lenders' calls for $60 million in higher post-petition interest and other claims for $33 million. The debtors also obtained the first lien lender's intercreditor agreement turnover rights against the second lien parties. Tuesday evening, the second lien parties, including indenture trustee BOKF and the ad hoc second lien group, announced that they had resolved their objections after receiving certain concessions, including contract rate post-petition interest and the debtors' waiver of the turnover rights that they had been assigned from the first liens, which effectively insulates the second liens from any clawbacks. Class 11 pre-petition equity interests, the only class entitled to vote on the plan, voted to accept the plan by a margin of almost 98%. On Tuesday night, the Mallinckrodt debtors filed a revised disclosure statement and accompanying black lines to their amended plan. Both are heavily modified from the prior versions, including a new classification structure for opioid claims and the addition of separate trusts for certain of the opioid classes. This new structure breaks down Class 6 gut claims, Class 8 governmental opioid claims, and Class 9 other opioid claims into various subclasses. The treatment for certain subclasses in Class 8 and Class 9 remains contingent upon an allocation agreement being reached in mediation. Treatment for funded debt claims remains largely unchanged. The anticipated Maykull premium disputes with the first lien notes and the second lien notes appear to remain unresolved, 
with the proposed treatment for each of these classes being unchanged. Additionally, the plan also now includes a term sheet for the crammed down secured notes. The proposed treatment for the class six general unsecured claims, which are now broken into the new opioid claims subclasses, including Octar claims, maintains the proposed $100 million distribution, but includes an affirmative election to receive new Mallinckrodt ordinary shares in lieu of cash. The plan also adds that GUC total implied equity valuation equals $1.43 billion. Class seven trade claims are still entitled to a share of the trade claims cash pool provided that such holders vote in favor of the plan and maintain its agreed favorable trade terms. The debtors state that based on an analysis prepared in early first quarter 2021, they believe that holders of trade claims and general unsecured claims in classes six and seven in the aggregate would be entitled to approximately $34 million as a midpoint in the absence of any of the settlements embodied in the RSA and in a strict application of the absolute priority rule under the bankruptcy code. Moreover, according to the debtors liquidation analysis attached to the DS, such holders would re recover less than $7 million in the aggregate in a theoretical Chapter 7 liquidation. The plan objection deadline is August 16th at 4 p.m. Eastern, and the confirmation hearing is scheduled for August 27th at 10 a.m. Eastern. GTT entered into an amendment to the Sale and Purchase Agreement, or SPA, relating to the planned sale of the company's infrastructure assets to I-squared Capital, which enables the agreement to remain effective in the event of a bankruptcy filing or event of default, according to sources. The amendment notice was disclosed privately to GTT lenders, and the changes took effect on Thursday, the sources said. Sources also added that the amendment would facilitate the closing of the sale despite the expected Chapter 11 filing. GTT, which received consents last week to extend the forbearance period under its 2024 unsecured notes to June 17th, faces an upcoming $23 million coupon payment on the notes on June 30th. The amendment notice stated that the SPA would be filed with the bankruptcy court shortly after the event, suggesting that a bankruptcy filing could be approaching, the sources said. Given that certain conditions, including a prepack agreement, are unlikely to be met, the December 2020 amendment governing the payout to lenders with proceeds from the asset sale is unlikely to hold in court, according to sources. Negotiations over GTT's debt restructuring have intensified amid disagreements between the company, the term loan lenders, and the bondholders over the company's proposed post-reorg capital structure, leverage, and payout to the senior unsecured notes. From the term lender's perspective, filing for Chapter 11 prior to the coupon due date would prevent value leakage to the unsecured note holders and a bankruptcy filing before the completion of the asset sale could imply a rework or annulment of the December 2020 amendment to GTT's credit agreement, which modified the mandatory prepayment waterfall for the U.S. and EMEA loan repayments with respect to specified asset sale proceeds. Without the amended waterfall, the U.S. lenders in a bankruptcy scenario would have received a more favorable pro rata share of the asset sale proceeds based on the outstanding amount of the loans. During a first-day hearing on Tuesday in the Cumtor Gold Company bankruptcy cases, Judge Lisa Beckerman overruled a blanket objection to the debtor's requested first-day relief for the Kyrgyz Republic, which questioned the propriety of the bankruptcy filing. The debtors characterized the filing as a solvent debtor case and said that the only reason they were in bankruptcy was due to an illegal expropriation event over the Cumtor Gold Mine in the Kyrgyz Republic, executed at the direction of a, quote, new regime in the Kyrgyz Republic. Debtors' counsel recounted the details of the return to the presidency of Sadr Yaparov after being jailed for attempted kidnapping and hostage-taking relating to the Comtur gold mine. Debtors' counsel said that the mine had been and continues to be profitable. He noted that the mine is, is 4,000 meters above sea level and is surrounded by glaciers that prompted environmental issues, including a $3 billion judgment against the debtors entered in a lawsuit filed on behalf of the Kyrgyz government seeking financial sanctions regarding environmental damage. 
Debtors' counsel said that this lawsuit was brought despite a comprehensive settlement entered into in September of 2017, including a full blanket U.S.-style release of all environmental claims. The debtors and their parent, publicly traded Canadian gold mining company Sintera, have filed for arbitration, subsequent to which the Kyrgyz government seized control of the mine. The arbitration is slated to take place in Stockholm under unique trial rules. Counsel for the Kyrgyz Republic rejected debtors' counsel's characterization of the government's actions with respect to the mine as illegal and argued that the cases should be dismissed. Kyrgyz counsel raised various issues, including arguing that the petitions were not validly authorized under the company's charters and Kyrgyz law, and that the bankruptcy court should abstain as a matter of international comedy, saying that the case has, quote, the thinnest connection to the United States. Judge Beckerman said that without a motion on file from the Kyrgyz Republic, she would not rule on these issues at the hearing, but acknowledged that she expects the case to be mired in in dismissal abstention litigation. She also asked what relief the debtors will be requesting in the case, noting that despite the power of the U.S. courts and the worldwide automatic stay, there could be difficulty enforcing orders outside of certain jurisdictions. Responding to the court's inquiry as to whether the debtors would be seeking to impose some form of custodial relationship on assets under the bankruptcy code, debtors' counsel said that the debtors were considering it, stating that it was not easy to run the gold mind that any damage done would be the responsibility of the Kyrgyz Republic. Debtors' counsel also defended the choice of form in the Southern District of New York, referring to a bank account and saying that the mine project has been connected with the New York for more than three decades. As all of the crucial documentation was negotiated in New York, most documentation is governed by New York law, and the proceeds of gold sales have always run through New York. On this point, Kyrgyz counsel said that virtually all the debtors' assets and all business operations are in the Kyrgyz Republic, and that the connections to the United States are slim at best, adding that they do not believe there is a material amount in the bank account that the debtors' counsel referenced. Top red stories this week included Tennessee Appellate Court rejects endo appeal of plaintiff substitution order, suggests sanctions judgment appeal proper, ad hoc trade group appeals district court decision affirming PG&E post-petition interest ruling, LATAM Airlines unsecured claim holders organizing with Gibson Dunn, McDermott CEO David Dixon to retire effective immediately, BOD member Lee McIntyre named interim CEO. Now here's Jim from Houston with the week ahead. Well, thank you and good morning all. Looks to be a relatively quiet week as we approach the summer doldrums. Monday, June 14th, a hearing in the matter of Mariah Del Norte, a wind farm in Texas versus Citigroup. Tuesday, June 15th, a DS and confirmation hearing in Malincrote. Some Puerto Rico-related hearings and a pre-trial omnibus hearing in Purdue Pharma. Looking forward to that one. Not much happening on June 16th and 17th, so let's just skip forward to Friday, June 18th, on which day there is a planned confirmation hearing in and Fieldwood Energy. And yes, that's it for me. Back to y'all in New York. And next up, an exclusive Reorg webinar where Reorg's Kyle Owusu discusses the state of the offshore drilling industry with Peter Oppitzhauser of Alex Partners and Martin Kelly of Wood McKenzie. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us on today's installment of the Reorg webinar series. Today, we'll be discussing life after restructuring for the offshore drilling industry. I'm Kyle Owusu, Director of Credit Research at Reorg. Please note, we will be taking questions from the audience today, so please submit your questions using the Q&A button at the bottom of your screen. Also, for your information, a replay of this webinar will be available on the Reorg media page later today for Reorg customers. Now let's get started by introducing our panelists today. We've got Martin Kelly, Vice President of Investment Research with Wood McKenzie, and Peter Oppitzhauser, Director of at Alex Partners. Uh, Martin and Peter, um, can you please just share a short introduction on your role and the company before we uh, get started with the discussion? Sure, Peter, you wanna go first? 
All right, thanks, Martin. Um, and hi, everyone, also from my end. Um, name is Peter Opitzhauser. I'm a director with Alex Partners based in London, mainly focusing on oil and gas and energy. Um, as a firm, we're obviously well known for our financial restructuring, restructuring capabilities, quite active in that space, um, and are complemented by our operational turnaround capabilities. Uh, Martin, do you want to go next? Sure, yeah. Thanks, Peter. Um, so, good morning, good afternoon, everyone. Um, my name is Martin Kelly. Um, I lead Wood McKenzie's uh, team that works with our institutional investor clients, um, also with uh, with law firms. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Wood McKenzie or Wood Mac, um, we cover the entire energy and natural resources value chain, proprietary research from uh, the oil and gas side all the way through to power markets, uh, commodities, uh, and so forth. Delighted to be here today. Thank you. All right, so let's get started. I see Brent crude is down about 2% today, though it's hovering around 68, and a year ago it was in the 30s. Um, you know, you have to imagine oil and gas CEOs are pretty happy, all things considered, right, Martin? Um, I mean, has there been increased appetite for offshore drilling with Brent crude at these prices? Um, well, so I mean, taking kind of the first bit of your question there, Kyle. So um, the, the first four months of, of 2021 have indeed been good times, certainly given the circumstances, certainly given what um, the, the upstream sector went through in 2020. Um, I mean, yeah, rewind a year ago, there's a real fear about how things would play out, um, how long would prices be uh, be down at those levels. Um, but it did bounce back. Um, and as I said, the first four months of this year have been great uh, for the upstream companies with Brent in that $60 a barrel range. I mean, all of that said, I think we'd still characterize sentiment as cautious. Um, so yes, there is some activity returning, but it's coming back at a pretty slow pace. Um, that kind of widespread confidence isn't there yet. And when, when we look at, yeah, kind of the, the, what companies are saying, where they're gonna be spending their money in the upstream patch, we still see that overall upstream CapEx um, markedly down on where we thought it would be at this point prior to the pandemic. Interesting. So it sounds like cautious optimism. Um, and and are there are there any geographies that are seeing more activity where where executives are are, are more confident? Um. So so yes, the the two areas that we see. Well, if we take a kind of um, let's call it a medium term outlook uh, on offshore drilling, where where do we see activity? Um, nearly 60% of our forecast wells uh, we see being drilled in, in Europe, in the North Sea in particular, and in, in Latin America. Um, so those are the two geographies where we're seeing um, more of that activity coming. And the, the kind of the, the corporate mix, if you like, um, the, 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 the companies are actually doing that drilling. Um, it's the it's perhaps unsurprisingly it's the it's the companies who are present in those basins. So it's the independents, the Tullos, the Lundines, um, the, the Petrobras's who are, who are the ones kind of really um, really behind this uh, this activity over the the next three four years out to twenty twenty five. And and 
you know, you I, you've characterized sort of the 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 general um, tone of the industry as cautiously optimistic. Would you say that that is similar with regard to the capital markets? I mean, you know, the world is sort of awash in in, in cheap capital right now. Is the same true for um, large international oil companies? Um, yeah. I mean, the, the so, so as you say, Kyle, there, there's. There's no shortage of capital um, around uh, at the moment. I mean, the oil and gas sector does have unique dynamics. Um, that there's no doubt about that. Uh, the cheap capital did help um, the sector in 2020. Um, I mean, not necessarily, or not not per se the the, the big IOCs, but the the lower 48 EMPs, for example, benefited them. Um, uh, from that cheap capital, helped them get through the, the price collapse. Um, but the majors, that the big IOCs are also um, benefiting to an extent uh, uh, from that cheap capital project finance. I mean, it all helps with that um, that kind of slow return of uh, of confidence. I mean, the flip side, and maybe we'll get onto this a little bit later. But the the flip side is that I mean, oil and gas companies, in in the eyes of the the capital markets, um, these days. Uh, Regardless of, of Europe or um, or North America, I mean, there's the kind of looming questions around the energy transition. What what does that do to risks uh, and so on? So there are kind of forces acting on on both sides in terms of that cost of capital. Yeah, and so so speaking of that sort of return um, to confidence, uh, you know what what. Um, triggers do you think uh, we should be on the lookout for uh, for for any signs of market exuberance to return? Yeah, it's a really interesting question, Kyle. Um, so we've just gone through um, results season, uh, and so when when we took a look through what the companies were saying, kind of what the message is, what the sentiment is. I mean, it is very much still focused on um, discipline. It, it, it's shareholder returns. It's we're we're not growing for growth's sake. We're not chasing production, um, and so I mean, there's a number of examples in amongst all of this. So I mean, again, if you take the lower 48 companies, um, EOG announced a special dividend. Uh, Pioneers promised a variable dividend policy. Um, marathon upped its dividend. So the lower 48 companies are really, for the first time, kind of focused on the, um, uh, or the first time in a while, certainly, focused on the on the shareholder returns. And, and the IOCs, the, the big majors, are, are absolutely similar. Uh, so um, real focus on paying down debt, um, kind of the, the prospect of increased shareholder returns. And I think from our standpoint, from our uh, conversations, from our analysis, we just don't see investors wanting that growth right now. They don't want that exuberance. Discipline absolutely remains a mantra uh, for 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 the offshore sector, for for the entire sector. Uh, um, full stop. Great, great, and and you know, transitioning um, sort of down the, the the food chain, if you will. Uh, you know, Peter. Um, can you discuss the the current supply demand dynamics for the for the offshore drilling sector? Sure. Thanks, Kyle. Um, I would say overall we we are seeing supply and demand dynamics to improve since essentially last December when we saw 
um, why price is increasing to basically what Martin just discussed. Um, second effect was really from some supply side actions taken by the operators, meaning some retirements and so forth. Um, however, we're still looking at a pretty oversupplied market, the order of magnitude of around 30%. It varies by asset class, but I think that's a good estimate. Um, Although the oversupply for the is, is imminent for both segments, the bigger ones, floaters and checkups, we see a more severe overhang in the floaters for various reasons. Um, now what's happening in the market is, and that's quite interesting. We've seen, um, especially in the floater space, day rates increasing, utilization increasing, uh, in particular in the US Gulf of Mexico region. Uh, and we have seen some significant retirements coming through. Um, on the other hand, if we're looking at the checkup market, um, utilization, but also day rates are pretty much trending sideways. sideways. Um, but we also have to admit at the same time um, that we have seen pretty strong or resistant metrics through COVID and last year. So bit of a mixed bag. Uh, we've seen things improving, but we're still looking at a pretty oversupplied market. And, you know, Martin, Martin had mentioned um, that discipline in the upstream segment is sort of the order of the day, um, which seems to be a slightly different tone from what we heard, um, certainly in the, the sort of heydays of 2012 or 2014. But I mean, I guess with regard to offshore drilling, um, how is this time or this period different um, for, for, for the offshore drilling sector? You know, how much supply is, is likely to be removed um, this time around after all these companies has got, have gone through their, or some of them, sorry, have gone through their respective restructurings? Right. I think there's three elements to that. First one is we're looking at much more healthy balance sheets or uh, in a couple of months when also the last bigger drilling companies are emerging from chapter 11 or from their respective uh, structuring processes. This is fundamentally different to 2016-17 when we mostly saw amended and extend activities. So basically liability is just being pushed out. Um, the second thing and probably most important one is the structure of the new shareholders. So we've seen uh, around $12 billion of debt converted into, from debt into equity. So that means um, the bondholders uh, became the new shareholders in most of those companies with significant cross holdings. And those financial investors are really also from the way they're acting and what we're seeing so far are putting a much more increased focus on financial returns, governance, and much more rigor on fleet retirement. So I think this is a real change and this is a real chance for the drilling sector to change for good because you have a facilitating external factor like the new shareholders. And there are various other smaller elements which probably are you know, too detailed at this stage. Carl, maybe I can just jump in there with a couple of thoughts as well, um, if I could. Um, I mean, yeah, so 
the, the offshore industry, um, the offshore drillers went through um, the, the price crash back in, in 2015, 2016, maybe didn't learn a lesson back then. Um, and so we're now at a point where, yeah, that's not that far in the past. Um, so there's still there's still plenty of, um, I mean, corporate memories are um, not always the longest, right? But uh, I mean, they can stretch back kind of five, six years. So I think there's, um, I think there's a, um, once bitten, twice shy sort of uh, um, uh, approach there. Um, the, the really interesting bit for me, though, is, um, I mean, it, things look like they're heading in the right direction. So the fundamentals are maybe there, um, some capital returning to the industry, um, companies, the, the upstream companies still being disciplined, the offshore drillers being disciplined. But what does it take for, I mean, it, it only takes one um, to, to start to pursue a market share strategy for for this to um, for this to change, if they start to add capacity or start to to, to chase rates downwards. Um, it's better to be second out the door than second last out the door. So I, I think it's a it's a kind of precarious situation, I guess. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And you know, with regard to um, that 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 point on on market share. Um, you know, turning to, I guess, consolidation and the theme of M&A and um, looking ahead in the future, we could pre presumably see um, a, a, a whole different mix of companies and, and a different mix of market play, market market leading players, if you will. Um, it seems like uh, the, the M&A theme um, is, is sort of kicking off in earnest. Um, we had the, the noble... Pacific drilling deal. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll open this up to both of you. Why, why do you think we're seeing M&A um, right now? And, you know, what is, what, is, what is different about, you know, similar, what is different about this time where the theme of consolidation seems to be actually playing out in earnest? I don't know, Martin. Do you want to go first? <laughs> I'm sure I'll take a step. I'm happy. <laughs> Um, no, I mean, I, yeah, I'll start with a couple of thoughts, maybe. Um, but why are we seeing M and A now? Um, I think a little bit of it's kind of existential. Um, it's we need to do something, um, and so there's a there's a safety um, there's a safety in size that there's there's kind of more scope for efficiencies. Um, I think is, is one element of it. Um, uh, I think yeah, there's also maybe um, a kind of need to do something mindset. We we can't yeah we can't go through what we did kind of five six years ago where maybe the industry kind of missed the chance to uh, to do something a little bit more fundamental. We're five six years further on. Um, we do have the risks around the energy transition coming um, or or upon us even. Um, so now is is the real opportunity to. To, to sort of fundamentally reshape the industry, and M and A is um, M and A is, is is one element of that. Just to expand on that, I think that's right, and it goes back to Martin's earlier comment on market shares. I mean, we have seen basically pricing bar being transferred from the service companies, and in that case, the drilling companies, um, towards the international oil and gas companies back in thirteen fourteen. And in some asset classes, we've seen day rates actually running close or actually under the OPEX break-even levels. Um, and there has been obviously a race to the bottom. Yeah? And this goes back to Martin's comment, right? Um, 
I think there's now fundamentally a change in perception um, because people, you know, recognize energy transition, don't play anymore the the hope of the, the eternal hope of recovery, of the market recovery and so forth, and are basically settling towards a more moderate market outlook. And by doing that, that facilitated also the comprehensive restructurings. And by doing that, basically, that should allow them to basically establish and move back pricing power from the international oil and gas companies back to the service companies. And the only way to do it is basically really looking at fewer but larger players. And I need to come back to my earlier statement around, you know, the new set of shareholders. Um, this is really unique, what we haven't seen uh, anywhere in the last 20 years or in the last restructuring cycle. Those are really the, the main facilitating factor in our view to actually make that happen this time and really push that through and also basically reinstate some discipline around capital, but also around pricing. Because without pricing leverage and pricing discipline, from an economics point of view, it will be very difficult going forward to really earn decent rate of returns. And, and Martin, you mentioned um, efficiencies uh, within in the context of M&A. Um, and so I wanted to touch on that a bit more and, and, and maybe Peter, you can speak to this, but I mean, what types of costs um, are drillers most likely looking to reduce or, or, or even potentially eliminate um, in, in some of these mergers? Martin, you want to go? You want me to go first? Yeah, you, you go for it, Peter, and I'll, I'll chip yeah. in if there's, um, if there's anything to add. Great. Um, I think we need to look at two things here. We need to look at the last M&A cycle, right, which happened in 1718, where we have seen four corporate transactions, you know, Transocean acquiring Ocean Rig, Songa, but also basically Rowan Ensco and Ensco Atwood. And obviously you mentioned Kyle earlier on the Noble Pacific drilling transaction. All of those essentially yielded uh, transaction synergies of around 5.5 to $6 million per acquired rig. And if you look at the breakout and basically the targets which have been disclosed, you can almost allocate around two thirds towards GNA cost savings and around one third to, let's call them operational costs slash CapEx synergies or you know, cost targets. Um, so when we talk about GNA cost synergies and so on, this is the classic, you know, org structure type of cost savings, number of FE, salary, back office, stuff like that. But it's also like regional office consolidation. We're hearing, we hear that more and more now these days. Uh, it's around the insurance premiums and in general I would say fleet management. And then on the other hand, the one third, which I mentioned, the operation cost savings. Um, this goes back to performance efficiencies, technology, real-time decision-making. Um, maintenance is a very big part where you can take out significant cost elements, both on the operational cost, but also on the CapEx element, you know, with SPS and so forth. And then obviously, which is becoming more and more important is effective inventory management, supply chain, logistics savings, right? So that's 
big question, do I need a certain spare part on every single rig? Or you know, can I have it on the onshore warehouse facility and then fly it with drones or other means to basically um, facilitate savings? So basically everything is, is, is mostly centered around either overhead, you know, two thirds or operational cost. I think in general, it's fair to say, given the way drilling operate, um, companies are operated, it's really about to spread out these costs across a larger number of rigs to achieve economics of scale. I think this is really one of the main benefits and then obviously targets to, to make the, the merger work from an economics point of view. Yeah, I'll maybe just um, echo a couple of points um, that, that, that Peter's mentioned. There are two two really interesting ones for me. Um, one is the is the if you like the spend on technology. What was the technology offering? Is it all? Um, uh, we heard a lot about technology both in the upstream side of things, but also amongst the the offshore drillers um, four or five years ago. Um, has it has it delivered the the returns that um, did it provide the differentiation? Was it worth the investment? Um, I would say some big question marks over that. Um, and I think Peter made a great point there about um, kind of procurement, efficiency, spares policy. Um, I mean, that's that's something that I think the the in, the, the oil and gas industry at large has is, um, is, is never quite got right. Um, so I think that there's definitely scope there. And with regard to M&A, um, Peter, what, what types of deals I guess, are, are you seeing uh, parties structure? Um, what, what, are, what are some common some common structures out there that we're seeing? Right. Um, let me go first back to the last cycle in 1718, where we have seen actually a lot of corporate transactions and obviously the classic assets deals, which is almost like part of the ordinary business in, in the offshore segments. If we're fast forward, we've seen essentially one corporate deal so far. This is Noble and Pacific drilling, um, acquiring essentially five rigs, two of which and other two being retired. And then we have only seen or announced at least one rig management deal around Cedric Partners, you know, that in the future, which has been sanctioned by the way, by the court, but it hasn't been actioned yet. So we need to see how that's gonna really, um, um, play out, uh, but this is basically with Vantage, with Diamond, with Oshfeld, and also this, the tender rigs with energy drilling. So this is a bit dangerous. If, if the industry were to move towards a rig management type of consolidation, um, there's a big chance and a likelihood that capacity wouldn't leave the market. So basically, um, companies would generate synergies, no question, right? Because they can uh, decreased and their GNA cost and all the things we discussed before, but effectively <clears throat> the ownership structure remains with the old shareholders, stakeholders, and uh, basically the operator is just the manager, which no incentive to remove it. So this is a bit, I would say, the danger if the industry were to move more towards a management consolidation versus a classic corporate or or asset transaction. And then I think we have seen a couple and heard a couple of rumors. Um, there were many lately, and I think you guys picked up on Noble acquiring some assets from, or a portion of the assets uh, from Cedre Limited, which hasn't been confirmed and so on. 
There's also a new OneRig um, company out there in Norway, just acquired uh, one drill ship. So there are various aspects, but this is more on the rumor side of things, or we couldn't call that really a trend so far. And I think we are too early in the cycle to really see in which direction we're, where we're heading at the end of the day. Got it, got it. And when we, when we look out more long-term, um, and we actually already have a uh, question in the Q&A bank, and I, I think this is a good transition towards that sort of long-term discussion, but when we look out long-term, I guess one consideration is the development of shale oil. And, you know, how does that, how does that factor into um, capital investment decisions by uh, E&P companies um, versus, uh, say, offshore drilling? So, I mean, I'm happy to, to have a, a go at that one, Peter, to, to start with, yeah. and, um, and and you can you can add your thoughts uh, afterwards if that works. So, um, I mean, uh, what, what we've seen kind of in in the um, in the lower forty eight, the um, tight oil, shale oil uh, sector, um, what we've seen kind of in the last twelve months, fifteen months, eighteen months, um, it, it's really quite a, a shift in. Um, how that industry is is um, yeah is kind of progressing or or is developing. I mean, it, you rewind um, back to that sort of uh, fourteen fifteen uh, territory. It was all about growth. It was it was reinvestment. It was um, invest your cash flow into to, to more drilling. Um, uh, what we're seeing now is um, is a is a fundamentally different strategy. Uh, there's much more discipline. There's much more emphasis on shareholder returns, and you're kind of seeing that come through in how that sector has has performed in the market in the last um, in the last six months, uh, give or take. Um, now, when you come to companies who have who have um, offshore opportunities in their portfolio, as well as the, the tight oil as well as the the the, the shale opportunities um i think a lot of it i mean it, this will come down to kind of portfolio management um what is the what is the outlook what what's the the willingness or the tolerance for kind of um concentration of uh, of risk um versus something that's a little bit more um a little bit more balanced um and the 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 investment profiles the 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 rates of return the above ground risk versus um uh, below ground risk they, they all have kind of different dynamics um if you're if you're going for offshore investments versus um versus the yeah the, the tight oil the, the lower 48 investments so um i mean different companies have have clearly got kind of different strategies in place um when you just take the the seven majors for example um, Exxon and Chevron, um, absolutely, with uh, with with their, their tight oil investments um, uh, at the heart, at the core of um, of their uh, of their strategies. As you move kind of um, over to the the European majors, um, you're seeing or you have seen in, in the past one two years, um, and and continuing to be the case, probably more emphasis on their new energies businesses, their their renewables businesses. 
um, all with a yeah, sort of different long-term strategy in mind um, and, a, and a different um, approach to, to balancing their investments in the portfolio. Peter, I mean, anything you want to... Um, no, I think this is a great summary. Um, let me just expand on the flexibility point, right? Um, I think we have seen since essentially again, 2014, 15, um, there's the fight for the marginal barrel going on between real shale oil, tight oil and, and basically offshore developments. And I think what Martin, just to stress it again, which is gonna be very key, Obviously, shale oil investments give you much more flexibility because you have like peak production in six months. You know, it's a fraction of the total investment cost and so on. Versus, you know, offshore developments usually at scale uh, take about two to three years to develop, um, multi-billion dollar investments and so forth. And especially looking forward now uh, with a lens on or an eye on energy transition, Companies are now thinking more and more critical, I would say, um, if those investments should be made, because obviously they need to make a call for the next 20 years if they should invest basically in, an, in a big offshore development. And, you know, need to make a call on the oil price or on the gas price and commodity prices. Um, you're going to determine what's your break-even um, oil or gas price and so on. And I think... I think, Martin, we discussed it initially, right, in, in preparation of that. But um, the lower the cash break even oil or gas price, the more likely something will go ahead. And this is, at the moment, a bit of a mixed bag between um, um, offshore and basically tight oil. And we really need to see also if investors are still willing to provide risk capital to basically the tight oil companies which have been funded basically a negative free cash flow for the last 10 years and only recently basically started to produce one. So I think you have that dynamic, which is going to be very interesting. Yeah, that's interesting that you mentioned um, energy transition. Um, you know, I, I want to get into that a little bit or, and, and, and sort of just throw this out there to both of you. But I mean, what are your, I guess, what are your thoughts on how um, the both from an investor standpoint, from an EP standpoint, um, the the expectations around the energy, the, the coming energy transition, how how is that going to impact um, you know capital allocation and really just how the sector approaches um, investments in general? Yeah. Um... So yeah, I'll, I'll I'll stab at that one then to begin with them, um, uh, Kyle. Uh, so, um, I mean, yeah, when, when we kind of think about the 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 long term, when you think about um, what kind of impact the energy transition might have on 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 the sector already is having on the sector. In fact, um, I mean, we we are base case scenario, if you like, um, uh, are. Yeah, our view of how the next few years going to play out. I mean, we we still see um, uh, oil demand rising. Um, uh, we've obviously got, I mean, good uh, oil prices at the moment. Um, uh, OPEC remains a kind of wild card in, in that what they do, um, but the the current deal is in place until next year. So there's a bit of um, there's a bit of stability. Oil oil companies have, have cut costs back um, substantially over the last year. 
um, and that their break-evens, their um, cash generation is all pretty healthy at the moment. Um, they've still got a bit of, um, yeah, kind of portfolio re, yeah, restructuring or portfolio um, uh, rebalancing to, to do. But I mean, largely, um, the last four or five months um, have been have been good in terms of the oil price and so on. Um, the, the longer term is kind of um, uh, the, the overhang or the um, the the role that the energy transition is going to to play. Well, we're already seeing that come through, as I mentioned, in how different companies are kind of approaching their their strategies. Um, some are kind of placing bets or, or emphasis in, in certain areas, and, and others are um, are taking a taking a different approach. Um, I mean, one of the things that we've done is um, we've run some scenarios uh, at Wood Mackenzie where um, we look at how the world might play out kind of under um, under sort of different assumptions. And, and one of those assumptions, um, if, if I just share this, uh, is around what happens to oil and gas prices, what happens to oil, the oil and gas industry um, if the world does move forward with uh, with its Paris uh, climate commitments, um, so kind of uh, um, meets or adheres to that two degree uh, two degree warming. Um, now, important to note that this is a scenario; it's not a forecast. Um, it's simply how we uh, see this potentially playing out. Um, but I mean, what, what we see in that circumstance or that scenario is we see oil demand peaking in the next few years um, in order to, to meet that two degree scenario. Um, for gas, it's a more robust story. Uh, we see um, gas demand, for example, continuing to grow in, in Asia and partly through coal to gas switching. So the kind of the fundamentals or the, the dynamics for the gas industry are really quite different to, to those for the, the oil industry. Um, just kind of building on what Peter said, um, in amongst all of that, the the in this two degree scenario, the world does not need uh, new supply. Um, now that's not to say that new supply won't be developed. Um, if it is economically advantaged, if it's got a lower break even than than high cost uh, supply, it will be developed. Um, but what you're then looking at is it's it's the near field exploration potentially. It's the 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 lower cost, high return, um, near field exploration and development that would be advantage there. Um, and it's also the the kind of bigger ticket exploration and development where um, the the potential break evens are low cost. They are um, they are economically advantaged, as I said. Um, so. The, the scenario there, that, that two degree scenario is, I mean, a lot of it is kind of downside risk for uh, for, for the industry. Um, and it's something that, uh, that that we see more and more companies um, taking into account and, um, and so, yeah, making their, making their investments, making their um, strategic choices uh, with that absolutely in mind. Peter, Peter, yeah, you might, might be muted. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just wanted to say this is a great leeway into the argument that I just wanted to bring, um, which is essentially we have seen a lot, or Martin was mentioning, a lot of the oil majors and international oil and gas companies have been cutting back on, on investments, upstream investments, and there might be a chance, although we see, you know, oil demand peaking around 2025 or what's the forecast from Wood McKenzie. 
um, that we see actually an oil price spike because of you know no investment and so forth, and that might be a chance for the drilling space, you know, as a last cycle before really we see a significant impact from energy transition coming through. So I think this is one interesting element which could happen, right? On the other hand, we could see a significant stranded asset risk more and more coming through. Um, basically, yeah, if we simplify that, there's a limited substitution for drilling assets as compared to other offshore assets. If we're looking at offshore supply vessels, construction vessels, you could still basically use those on offshore wind farms and other applications. A drilling rig is can only be used essentially for drilling um, a well. So there's obviously that risk. And on the other hand, also contradicting that almost is the reinvestment risk. So we've seen basically that the order book is completely empty almost for you know, floaters, checkups, and so on. A lot of the investors, both on the debt and equity side, have been burned over the last 10 years in the sector and are less likely and less willing to provide risk capital to the sector going forward. So there's obviously a question once the assets are getting older, who's going to replenish them? And obviously then looking ahead for energy transition and everything what we just discussed, is actually a need to replace those. But if we see a spike, there might be. So I think this is almost like a revolving scene where we really need to closely monitor over the next 24, 36 months in which direction we are heading, both from what Martin mentioned from a political landscape perspective, right? Which measures are being implemented, um, how do we get out of COVID? What sticks from the during COVID period? You know, less travel and so forth, um, jet fuel consumption and so on, and which doesn't. And I think that will then key will be key then to really determine the long term um, suitability of the drilling industry and associated returns. Great, great. Thank you, Martin and Peter. Um, on that note, let's see uh, what, what questions have come in so far. Okay, so it looks like this first one is probably for you, Peter. Um, how do you see uh, rig demand and supply level in the UK and the Norway continental shelf in the coming years? Um, the area has seen a lot of attrition in the latest years and the demand based on tenders in both areas are at a 10 year high, according to certain rig companies. Yeah, great question. I would say, especially the Norwegian continental shelf I've seen, um, it's pretty attractive at the moment, also because of the tax, um, the new tax regime, what Norway in implemented. So I think that's one. Second, you have a couple and Martin obviously Please, please jump in here. But we've seen a lot of bigger reservoirs which haven't been developed yet, right? Which gives you a large resource base, which basically lowers the unit development cost, which again, justifies those developments. Um, and those are mostly in harsh environment um, areas. So basically we see basically still harsh environment floaters and that kind of assets as really um, the asset class to be in or more protected from any negative movements going forward because of high, um, high barriers to entry, 
and so forth. There's a limited number of players in there. There's a certain technology level you need to have certain newer or younger assets basically to deploy and work on these areas. So we still feel that, especially the Norwegian side of thing, uh, is should be favorable for the for the time to come. Um, on the UK, this very much depends on you know various other elements uh, on the macro front, uh, also the commitment from you know um, some of the new owners of the fields. We've seen a lot of asset transaction coming through, basically the the majors leaving the UK and basically private equity-backed companies um, taking those positions. And obviously, there's, we need to see how those companies think about reinvestment, uh, think about you know, managing the reserves going forward and, and so forth. Yeah, maybe I'll just add a couple of thoughts um, to, to that, uh, largely echoing um, much of what Peter's already covered. Uh, but... Yeah, I mean, so, so we see the we see there, there being a, a reasonable um, level of demand um, in the jackal space on on both sides of the um, of the the border there, and um, between the UK and, and and the Norwegian continental shelf. Um, I mean, yeah, we are seeing the the kind of planned wells, if you like, um, increasing. Um, over the coming years, uh, particularly in the Norwegian uh, in the Norwegian space, um, the UK, uh, exactly as Peter said, um, heavily influenced by some of the the, the assets changing hands. Um, what does that mean for um, for for sort of future development on these? The other thing I just add to that is around um, we've got this kind of decommissioning um, uh, decommissioning story looming um, already upon us in, in the UK. And that's really something that, that's kind of on the minds of um, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of um, the, the operators. Um, when am I going to have to start uh, spending on these? What does that look like? Um, uh, and is there any way that I can um, I, I can defer that slightly? Um, so that there's a few there's a few points there for 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 some of the operators to consider. Got it. Thank you. And next question, um, with regard to uh, offshore drillers that still have high debt levels and um, have not been through a restructuring, uh, you know, how, how are those players going to survive medium term uh, when presumably they're going to have much worse balance sheets than uh, many operators in the industry who have gone through uh, restructurings and are emerging with much cleaner balance sheets? Right. Um, I think that's one of the, the key questions, to be honest. And when we wrote the paper a couple of months ago, we, we really did an in-depth analysis on that. I mean, there's one theory which, if you look at all the costs, basically, which is needed to run a drilling company or a rig, and you calculate the cash pre-given um, day rates uh, needed to basically cover all these costs, you know, GNA, RICOPEX, um, your debt service, your principal, and so on. And if you then compare basically post-restructure of drilling companies with you know, pre-restructuring um, uh, operators, you see that a difference of around 30 to 40% in their cash pre-given day rates, which means that you can basically act much more aggressively or think differently about it 
you can uh, achieve uh, an economic return much earlier and much lower than compared to your competitors who didn't go through a restructuring. And that means basically um, you are much more competitive in, in, in that set of metrics going forward. I think that is one element, right? Um, the second element is around consolidation. Um, obviously, if you have um, a not really healthy balance sheet, uh, you're highly leveraged, you're less likely to be able to attract new capital, and therefore you're less likely able to basically also play a part or take a part in the, in the consolidation, yeah, either with asset transaction, corporate transaction, and so forth. So I think it limits both, right? It it's limits your ability to compete on the market, but it also limits uh, uh, the ability to basically take part in the consolidation. However, I mean, if we look at what we discussed earlier, if we see an oil price spike, right, and we see rates increasing to crazy levels again, um, then probably this debt can be recycled and forth. But I think Martin myself agree on that. This will be rather short-lived and should basically reverse very quickly thereafter. Indeed. Okay, so these ne the next set of questions, um, I can probably group into two. They sort of get at the same theme. And I think um, in a way encapsulate um, a lot of the concerns that, that people in the industry are having. But, um, you know, with regard to um, uh, day rates right now, um, you know, how is the increase um, in, in, in floater day rates or, or what are your thoughts around rather the increase in floater day rates being sustained and sort of not being undermined by companies underbidding um, that have low cash break evens? And then similarly, um, you know, with oil prices above 60, um, are, opera are operators less incentivized to continue scrapping their floaters? So in other words, could you see um, sort of the, the quote unquote recovery in the offshore drilling segment become sort of prolonged because we have this, this, this the, the continued um, operations towards low, low cash break evens and uh, lack of scrapping, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. All right. Martin, do you want to go first or should I? Yeah, I mean, I'll, 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 I'll go first, Peter, and then hand over yeah, to yourself. Yeah. No problem. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll probably come at this from a from a pretty high level, I would say. Um, uh, and and in some ways, I I kind of answer this question with a with a kind of yeah a question kind of more broadly. Is like if uh if one of these offshore drilling companies um does start to chase a market share based strategy, how are the investors going to um, going to view that? Because if uh if someone does um, hold on to capacity or someone does start to underbid where um, or undercut rather where where the day rates are to to yeah to get more of that market um, to have more of their rigs um, active is that going to be rewarded by the, the shareholders um, uh, is that going to be viewed how is that going to be viewed by the market if it's rewarded well um, it then, then it's a kind of it's better to be, as I said earlier, it's better to be second out the door than second last out the door. Um, everyone kind of follows that uh, strategy, and it becomes a race to the bottom. Um, I mean, 
the the flip side of it is like the discipline remains anyone who kind of even floats that market share strategy or kind of begins to talk about it um is actually um uh, punished uh, if you like um uh, in, in terms of how the how the stock uh, how the stock is viewed um so i think i think the the investors the shareholders and maybe even the bondholders um all have a where appropriate or where relevant um have a have an important role to play in um, in in how that uh, how that actually pans out. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I fully agree with your statement, especially the, the last part around you know the bondholders, new new shareholders. Um, when when we talk with management and we work along them, you can see that um, they're really pushing for more financial discipline, more transparency, and so forth, and for more pricing discipline. Now, I think when we talk about the pricing discipline, we almost need to differentiate between floaters and checkup because the floater market essentially is really in the hands of, call it eight to 10 bigger international drilling contractors, most of which basically are, into the, are either went through a chapter 11 or a restructuring process or is still going through one. And basically there you have the cross holdings and you know, we've seen already the first transaction coming through. So there's a chance that this will really stick, right? Because it's really driven by, let's call it the bondholders. On the other hand, if we're looking at the checkup market, which hasn't really seen a restructuring, I mean, the two players have decided so far to go via out of court transactions or you know, processes meaning shelf drilling and board drilling. And only basically Valarius is the one bigger player who went through a restructuring. So what I'm, long story short, what I'm trying to say, we see less of the benefits we discussed on the floater side really coming through for the checkups. So probably we have less pricing discipline because of that. And on top, or it's facilitated because it's a very fragmented market, right? So we have around more than 100 owners who are owning around on average two to three checkups, partially um, family businesses, there are a lot of legacy issues involved. So if we simplify, probably the floater um, segment is more prone towards discipline. And if we simplify also the checkup, it's probably less likely, or there are more arguments why that wouldn't probably stick. Great. I think I think that dovetails nicely um, to the to the next question, which is when you look at um, maybe the the more local operators. So the, the 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 not the large international offshore drillers, but for example, some local Brazilian players or or Chinese companies um, that have been um, uh, at least in this question have have been bidding aggressively on tenders. Um, how much of a risk does this pose to rig market recovery when you talk about, you know, for example, with the jackup industry where you have so many um, different players and it's very fragmented and it's not just these large international offshore companies? Right. Great question. Difficult to answer. Um, let me try. <laughs> um, so if we're looking at the, the competitive landscape and in that sense also the restructuring landscape, almost every single drilling company is going through some sort of process. Yeah, they're just like a handful, like MERS drilling and so on, who are really have a healthy balance sheet, well-equipped to basically weather the storm. 
So if we're looking at, in general, the local operators, it doesn't mean it matter if it's the, the, the Mexican ones, the Brazilian ones, the, um, the Asian ones, and so forth. Each of those are going actually through a process, or the majority of which, and basically dealing with the international bondholders. Um, given that the restructuring schemes are quite different compared to chapter 11, where you basically convert simply debt into equity, you know, um, we see less of the benefits really coming through. And yes, there is obviously in Brazil as one of the most attractive offshore markets also going forward because of the low break-even prices. Um, there's a risk that the local companies are underbidding. On the other hand, if you compare that, each of the bigger operators, it doesn't matter if it's Ocean, Constellation, and so on, each of those has serious issues, financial troubles, liquidity constraints, and so on. So we really need to see how that plays out, right? And, and on average, I think Martin mentioned that going forward, I think being a solid, good operator with solid financials, it's going to be even more key to be selected to carry out the job. Right, as compared in the past. So I know this is probably not giving the answer what whoever posted the question, but uh, it's very tricky. It very much depends on uh, on how things are really playing out with the restructuring at the moment and proceed to see you know which direction that we're heading. And with regard to um, digital transformation, I'm sort of uh, switching gears a bit. Um, is the oil industry accelerating uh, digital transformation in a, in a post-COVID world? And if so, um, where are the investments happening and is this a priority? Um, so I'll, I'll take that one to begin with there uh, perhaps. Um, so I, I would say, the short answer to that is yes, companies are investing um, in digital technologies, in their digital transformation. Um, I think they see it uh, as a lever to um, lower the cost base. Um, so what, where, where, can we, where can we find some efficiencies? Where can we do the same thing faster, where can we do it uh, cheaper, where can we do it more efficiently, and digital technologies um, absolutely have a, have a role to play um, in that. Um, I mean, uh, we, we've, uh, we've looked at this um, uh, to, to some extent at Wood McKenzie, um, and I mean, I, I think, as I said, we, we, see it as a, we see it as a lever. We see the companies um, placing that, that strategic priority on it. it it's, it's talked about a lot in strategy days. It's talked about a lot in, um, in, investor, in investor calls. Um, I, I don't think it, uh, it, it can, nor should it be viewed as a, as a panacea. It's not gonna solve kind of um, all the ills that, uh, that, that affect the industry. Um, I think it will help. Um, and so, I mean, so maintaining that discipline, if you like, or kind of what's the return we're getting for the investment in the digital technologies remains a really important question, just the same way that, um, the, that what are the returns you're getting for or getting from um, any other investment uh, uh, as, as, a, as an upstream operator. I mean, Peter, maybe you've got um, some perspective on, on, the, on the drillers themselves. Yeah. No, I agree on that. I was just thinking 
basically we see two areas really being an increased focus. One is really data, you know, to facilitate, improve productivity, efficiency, and so forth, particularly around drilling operations. Um, and how can that be used to be actually even more effective? So yes, this is coming more and more through. Um, second element is also around probably more of an, an ESG topic, but the way you basically fuel your rig, yeah, not by, by diesel anymore, but basically by electro or electricity plugs, which we increasingly see almost being a requirement going forward, right? especially when it's close to the shelf. And then I think we touched upon with the, the synergies around inventory optimization and so on. I think there a lot of money is, or a lot of focus is being currently on how can we optimize it again? How can we use data? Um, how can we use other technologies like drones and so on to make that even more effective? So I think that there is an increased push. It's mostly going what we know and what we see in the market towards how, how big data essentially, you know, how can, how can this be used in a better way to improve drilling operations? Great. Okay, well, that's all the questions we have time for today. As a reminder, Reorg is a global provider of credit intelligence, data and analytics for law firms, investors and advisors. If you are already a Reorg, Reorg subscriber, please send any further questions you have on this or any other topics to customer success at reorg.com. And a big thank you to everyone in jo who joined us today, as well as our panelists, Martin Kelly and Peter Oppetauser. Thank you and have a great day. Thank you again for listening to this Reorg Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the reorg.com media page, as well as Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Hope your families are healthy and safe. Have a great weekend and see you next Sunday.